This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're in chapter 13. You may have wondered, if you've attended a church for any length of time, why there are some people that bear fruit while others bear none. It might seem odd to you that some people in your congregation are growing and being transformed by the Holy Spirit, while others just aren't. Today, Jesus will explain that phenomena, and he'll remind us of our primary role as workers in his field. And it will beg the question, regardless of how good you act, are you good seed destined for the barn or bad seed headed for the furnace? My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If you have your Bibles, open them to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read verses 24 through 30. And that portion of Scripture says this, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the parable of the tares, according to the disciples. They named this parable the parables of the tares. And it's very simple to understand. It's got two points in the outline, two pairs of contrast. The first one we're going to call sowing and sabotaging, verses 24 through 28. The first pair of contrasts. Now, in the first parable, Jesus focused on the soil, but this one, the craftiness of the culprit, followed by the wisdom and the forbearance of the landowner, takes center stage. So the master storyteller draws our attention to two types of seed, the good seed and the bad seed. And I want you to see here with me that the good seed has three components associated with it. The first one is the farmer. That's the first component in verse 37. The reason we know that is because Jesus said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. By using that title, he identifies himself as the main character, as the protagonist of the parable here. And the reason he does that, church, is because he wants to eliminate any doubt concerning the origin of the kingdom of heaven. But that is the first component associated with the good seed here, the farmer. I want you to see the second component associated with the good seed, and that is the field. Look at verse 38. Jesus Christ says it clearly. The field is the world. He clarifies that in this parable here, the soil does not represent the church, but the world. See, he would have used the word church. He knows how to do that. He said it in Matthew 16, verse 16. He used the word church to identify the fact that the gates of Hades would not overpower the church. But in this case, he says it clearly. The kingdom is the world. But church, let me ask you. Does God not manifest the kingdom of heaven through the church, at least in our time now? 
So even though he doesn't say that the field is the church, the church is involved here because the church is in the world and God is doing his work in and through the church. Let me demonstrate that to you. At the moment you became a believer in Christ, God has placed you into the universal body of Christ. That is in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. If you're a believer in Christ, you belong to the universal church, whether you know it or not, whether you want to or not. Of course, you're going to want to belong to the body of Christ if you're a believer, but you belong to the universal church. Now, God then is going to direct you and guide you to a local assembly. So that is how the kingdom of heaven is manifested in this time in the world. But I also want you to know that the field represents the world outside of the borders of Israel. Again, when Jesus said the field is the world in verse 38, his disciples immediately demonstrated some interest in that because they would have wondered, so does that mean that Gentiles are going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? Gentiles meaning known Jews? And that's exactly what Jesus has in mind because remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen some Gentiles already demonstrating faith and God demonstrating that he will allow them to make it to the kingdom of heaven. But furthermore, I want you to see that by using this term, by saying that the field is the world, Jesus also clarifies that even though he refers to the kingdom in heavenly terms, in other words, he reigns in the spiritual realm, angels, demons, etc., he also reigns in the physical realm, plants, animals, and people. But here's something else I want you to see in verse 24. The use of the possessive pronoun. When Jesus says, the farmer went out to sow in his field. Now, that tells us who the world belongs to, church, doesn't it? The world belongs to Jesus Christ. You may remember the scene in the book of Revelation in the heavenly choir when they sang about Jesus. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, Revelation 5, verse 8. And in that scene, you will remember, there's the title deed of the world being transferred from the hand of the Father to the hand of the Son. In other words, church, the world has never changed ownership. The world belongs to God, it belongs to Jesus Christ, the Son, and belongs to God, the Father, as well. Therefore, we should relax knowing that He has total control. The world belongs to Him, the field is the world. See, Scripture says Satan is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 and 2. But I want you to know there has never been a change in ownership, and there will never be a change in ownership. The devil and his hosts have temporary and limited access to the field. But I want you to know that not only does Jesus own everything, he upholds all things by the word of his power in Hebrews 1 verse 3. And furthermore, according to Colossians 1.16, all things have been created by him, for him and through him. So the world belongs to Christ. Therefore, church, the son here, the farmer of this field, has complete jurisdiction to build his kingdom in the world. So we looked at the farmer in the field, but let me tell you about the third component associated with the good seed here in this parable, and that is the family. The family. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Now, he's using familial terms. He's using terms of endearment to identify people who are subjects of the kingdom of heaven, those of us who are born again and are now believers in Christ. Now, contrary to the first parable, the seed in this one illustrates not a message. But now, Jesus says, people are the seed. They are the sons of the kingdom. But we need to understand exactly what he means here, because what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, in order for you not to get confused, thinking, wait a minute, we're not good by nature, but Jesus is telling us that we are good. Well, he qualifies this illustration here in terms of divinely imputed favor upon believers. In other words, 
The only reason you and I are good is because we have the righteousness of God imputed to us the moment we became believers in Christ. You understand that? We are not good by nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Jesus calls the sons of kingdom good seed, what he has in mind is to say they are good because I made them righteous. I have declared them to be righteous at the moment of their salvation. On top of that, no seed can ever self-plant. Now, I'm not a farmer, so I've never done this, but one thing I know for sure is seeds cannot be self-planted. It's a passive process, meaning someone else needs to do it. In this case, Jesus Christ is the farmer who sows the good seed in the world, which means that unless Jesus admits people into the kingdom of heaven, people will not make it to the kingdom. You can only make it to the kingdom of heaven if Jesus Christ admits you into the kingdom. And the good news is that he does it on the basis of saving faith. By grace through faith are we saved. And when he does, when he welcomes us into his kingdom, Jesus refers to us by using familial terms, like I said, terms of endearment, to describe our adoption. We are the sons of the kingdom. According to 2 Corinthians six eighteen. we are sons and daughters. And according to First uh, John 3, verse 1, we are children of God, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8, verse 17. We have been received into his family by his grace. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, that by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Which means, again, that we can never self-plant. We need to be planted by God. And scripture clarifies to us that by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Peter agrees when he says, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. We don't cause ourselves to be born. God causes us to be born again to a living hope. 1 Peter 1, 3. In church, I want you to know, Jesus could have called us slaves of the king and he would have been right. He could have called us subjects of his kingdom and he would have been right. But in this case, he prefers to identify us as sons, identifying the condition of adoption that we're using a term of endearment, which communicates his affection for us. So the three components of the good seed here in the sowing and sabotaging part of the kingdom here, we have the farmer, the field, and the family. But let's talk about the bad seed, because that's what's next here in this parable, verses 25 through 28. There are two components associated with the bad seed that Jesus clarifies here for us. And the first one, according to verse 38, is the fraud. How do we know that? Because he says that the tares are the sons of the evil one. You see, notice the contrast here. In the same verse, he talks about the sons of the kingdom, and now he says the tares are the sons of the evil one. There are the fraud. What we know then, church, is that during the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven, the sowing and sabotaging part, there will be frauds. There will be counterfeit believers, opposition to kingdom work. Now, Jesus wants to show his listeners the picture of opposition to kingdom work, of sabotaging his work. Counterfeit sons, the sons of the evil one who are attached to and indistinguishable from genuine believers. How do we know that? Because of the imagery of roots being intertwined, braided. Because that's how tares and wheat grow together. You can't tell them one from the other unless or until they expose themselves. But in the meantime, the roots will grow together, telling us that there will be opposition to kingdom work. Satan will be seeding or planting people into the kingdom that are attached to and indistinguishable from genuine believers. And these tares, also known as darnels, represent children of Satan, planted in the kingdom of God for the sole purpose of causing damage, to sabotage the work of the farmer. 
Now Matthew identifies some of them in the beginning of the gospel here when he quotes John the Baptist. You remember this when we studied this passage, that John, the forerunner, called out some of the Pharisees when he says, you brood of vipers. In other words, you are the sons of the evil one, offspring of serpents, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And again, these weren't atheists, church. These weren't pagans. These were Pharisees counterfeit believers everybody thought that they were legitimate sons of the kingdom in fact they wanted everybody to think that they belonged to the kingdom but when you get to chapter 12 you have them saying no 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 jesus christ is operating by the power of satan well you don't get more evil than that than to associate the miracles of christ the work of christ to satan i mean that's the complete opposite of truth they probably didn't realize that satan planted them in the kingdom for the purpose of deceiving people but here's something very important for us to know. I want you to write this down. This is a revealed mystery for us. And that's, that's a wonderful truth. But this revealed mystery here does not give us permission to label our critics or our opponents or our persecutors immediately diabolic implants. Why? Because until they reach a certain level of development, you cannot differentiate one from the other because you can't see the root. You see, you don't know what's going on in the root. And spiritually speaking, we're not skilled reapers either. We will do damage if we try to do something we haven't been called to do. In fact, the scripture gives us clear instructions on how to deal with folks who act like tares, which we will get to when we get to Matthew 18. But for now, I just want you to know, church, often people who act like bad seeds turn out to be strong-willed church members or just sheep that bite their shepherds. So we suspend judgment until we can see the fruit. So we talked about the fraud, one component associated with the bad seed. But let me talk to you about the foe. According to verse 39, Jesus says it clear. The enemy who sold them is the devil. Again, there's no mystery here. You don't, he's revealing mystery. You don't get any clearer than that. The enemy who sold them is the devil. So the parable of the terrors then reveals to us one strategy of the slanderer. So we can conclude then very clearly that every false religion that ever existed or every religion that claims you need to be saved by good works is a diabolical implant. Why? Because it contradicts clearly the message by which people are admitted into the kingdom. Even atheism is a false religion. Did you know that? Atheists like to say they're non-religious. They're one of the most religious people you'll ever meet. Why? Listen to Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So atheism is really a bunch of fools worshiping foolishness together. But I want you to know, church, that while Satan has limited autonomy to sabotage kingdom work in the world, he does prefer to mess up the church. Why would he focus his efforts anywhere else? He already harvests fruit in government agencies, for example, that support abortion and all of these things, in the entertainment industry that promote anti-God values and all of that. Why would he mess up institutions that are already doing his work for him? So his target is the church. I want you to know you are a target of Satan. Satan wants to plant bad seeds in the church among good seeds. And again, it's so hard to distinguish them because they are so alike. They intermingle so well. And that's the reason, church, you will meet many professing believers, sometimes acting like practical unbelievers. Because that's what Jesus says. Now, don't ask me why. I haven't made the rules. I'm just giving you the message. I don't understand God's plans 100%. Uh, we can only understand what he has revealed here in his word. But we just trust him. He knows what he's doing. So during this time of coexistence between the good and the bad seed, one thing we need to do, my friends, is to preserve the purity of the church. How do we do that? We confront 
sin. And we exercise church discipline, confident that Christ maintains total control of the growth of his kingdom. And we take great comfort in knowing that according to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 2, during the millennial form of the kingdom, Satan will be bound, only to be released at the end of the thousand years for a period of time to lead a a last rebellion and be thrown to the lake of fire. But according to this parable here, the bad seeds, the tares, eventually reveal themselves. Again, you cannot identify the bad seeds. It's hard to distinguish genuine believers from true believers in the beginning because you can't see the fruit immediately. You can't see the root immediately. You can see the fruit later. But eventually they reveal themselves, which concerned the workers in this parable here, the fictitious workers. They were concerned. And therefore they inquired Jesus Christ about this. They say, wait a minute. If that's the case, then how do we keep the kingdom pure? That is their concern. And their inquiry leads to the second set of contrasts in this parable here that I want you to see. The first one is sowing and sabotaging. The second one, according to verses 24 through 30, is burning and barning. Understandably, the fictitious workers here want to purge the field. They care about the field. They are loyal to the master. They don't want his work to be undermined. So again, they volunteer to avenge the master and undo the work of the enemy. But there's a problem with that. The problem is they are not skilled laborers. And that's fact what Jesus says here. And they may accidentally hurt the sons of the kingdom in the process. They may uproot the sons of the kingdom in the process. So Jesus is very clear. That's not your job. That is not your job. The roots of the wheat and the tares will grow intertwined. That's by divine design. Only a skilled harvester can untangle them. Not the workers here. But who do these guys represent? That's the question. Because Jesus is naming every one of the elements in the parable except the workers. Jesus doesn't tell us who they are. But we can understand that from the context. They are the disciples that heard the explanation of that parable. And the reason we know that is because these guys couldn't wait to see the kingdom of heaven being established. They couldn't wait to see the kingdom in all its purity and glory and to see the sons of the evil one blasted out of existence. Now, why do you think that they would ask Jesus right after the resurrection in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? In other words, Lord, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Are you finally going to zap your enemies right now? Are you finally going to burn them up alive? Because we've been waiting for this for a long time. They've been calling you satanic. They put you on the cross and they're going to persecute us soon. But is it at this time? And you remember the answer. Jesus says, not for you to know. You will be my witnesses. And that has been God's plan for the last 2,020 years. Particularly, I want you to see that James and John had that sentiment. In Luke 9, verse 54, there's a story of some people who rejected Jesus. And James and Luke said to Jesus Christ, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? As if Jesus couldn't do that by himself? As if they needed to help Jesus? As if, oh, you don't have that insight, Christ, so we do. And listen to what Jesus told them in verse 56. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In other words, this is not your job. Your job is not to call down fire from heaven to judge people. There's going to be the time for that. But for now, I have a different job for you. And church, who among us doesn't share the disciples' desire for the purging of the world? I mean, we see our culture going down the drain by the month, and we get upset, understandably so. And we have that burning desire in our hearts to to ask God, when, Lord, when? 
When are you going to start judging people? But we need to understand, church, that unbelievers do what they do because they are false seed. They do what they do because by divine permission, Satan planted them alongside the sons of the kingdom. Furthermore, we need to understand that these folks go to the same schools as we go. They go to the same gyms as we go. They work at the same place. You might live with one of them. You might share a bed with a son of the evil one because they're unbelievers. So we care deeply about these people. Our initial thought is, Lord, when are you going to establish your kingdom here? I can't wait for that. And that's fine. But we need to understand God's plan. And here's God's plan. According to this parable here, he will allow them to develop until he says, time's up. God will allow those tares to grow and to develop until he says, my patience is finally over. God's patience will eventually run out. Remember last week I told you God's love is infinite. His patience is not. There is a time when God says it's time for the uprooting. But in the meantime, he has not called you and me to uproot anything. We need to understand that. Our job is not to uproot anything. We're not harvesting angels. We will do damage to other people if we try to do that. We will do damage to other people if we start passing on judgment prematurely. Because we don't know motivations of the heart, we can't see the root. We can only see fruit. Furthermore, only God judges righteously, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Again, because only He knows heart motivation. Only He knows what's really going on in your heart. You can fake it all you want, but only God knows what's going on in your heart. Now, what we should do, church, according to Matthew 7, verse 16, is we inspect fruit, of course. And we identify and we protect the flock from doctrines of demons, according to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. In other words, my job is to protect you from false doctrine. My job is to uh, shoo the wolves away from this flock. But we leave the barning and the burning to the Lord. So Jesus then offers a better solution here than the problematic solution for dealing with the sons of the evil. And because that's what's in question here. And the strategy here is for cleaning the field. So he's saying, evil is going to grow. I have that under control. I am allowing it to happen. But here's the strategy for dealing with that till the proper time. So there are four elements that I want to share with you in these last verses here, verses 29 through 30. Element number one in verse 39, the consummation. The second part of that verse, the consummation. When Jesus says, the harvest is the end of the age. In other words, there's not going to be a harvesting now. The harvest is at the end of the age. And judgment then will happen at that time. In the meantime, what we do, church, is we confront evil by calling on people to repent and come to Jesus Christ because there is time between now and the end of the age that they can escape the fire. That is our job. We want people to be barned, church, not to be burned. Why? Because we were once headed to the furnace. We were sons of disobedience, headed towards condemnation. If it weren't for the grace of God that reached out to us, we would have been judged forever. But God allowed us to be saved. In fact, He saved us. We received salvation, not condemnation. So for that reason, church, we want people to be barned, not burned. That leads me to the second element here of the proper strategy here, the collaboration. We talked about the consummation, but look at verse 39. The last part of that verse is a collaboration. The reapers are angels. The appointed harvesters will execute judgment at the right time. In the meantime, sons of the kingdom fulfill our duties as proclaimers of good news. 
But let's talk about the third element of the proper strategy here for dealing with the purification of the kingdom here. Verses 40 to 42, Jesus says this, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and uh, those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there is that tragic picture here of future judgment. The furnace of fire, I want you to know, symbolizes the lake of fire of Revelation 19, verse 20. The final destination of everyone who rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Everyone who refuses to come to Christ, tragically, will end up on that place. So church, Scripture is very clear. We should be out telling sinners, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God today. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Because if you do, here's what awaits you. The last element here of this strategy, the conclusion in verse 43. Jesus says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The people who God declares righteous through the new birth, through salvation, we have the opposite destination of the sons of the evil one. This is our future as sons of the kingdom. We are not going to be burned. We are going to be barned. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.